Welcome to Trafe, a debatably Jewish podcast. So it's the third episode and we still haven't received any hate mail, which leads me to believe that probably not a lot of Jewish people are actually listening to the show. So if you are listening to the show, please write in. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit less excited about the possibility of mail. I'm hoping that any form of hate mail is not in font 142 and doesn't contain photos of violence and destruction, particularly of scenes that happened between 1939 and 1945. That is a popular trait amongst people who send me or you hate mail, and hopefully they will not do that. But if you write in, we will read our favorites on the show. Yep, hopefully this form of nagging works. Oh, also, Sam, I don't know if you saw the new Amazon Prime show that got announced. I did not. I am not on top of Amazon Prime news. Okay, so there's a new show that takes place in an alternate reality where the Axis powers won World War II, and it takes place in the United States. Oh, wow. Is it defined where in the United States? I don't know, actually, but the the reason I'm bringing it up is because they totally stole our idea. Yeah, they did. Uh, Listeners, we were working for a solid year on a sitcom proposal. David, would you like to kind of try and give the two-minute elevator pitch? Okay, so the idea is it's a sitcom. It's kind of like a combination of Perfect Strangers, Friends, and Seinfeld, and it takes place in an alternate reality where the Nazis won World War II, and it takes place in New York City. The major character with whom we kind of move through this fictional world is a guy named Larry. Yeah, Larry is a cab driver, but secretly Jewish. And there's also another main character who is a washed-up propaganda star who moves in with Larry, and a lot of the first season deals with the incongruity between their personalities and preferences. (laughs) As you can tell, there is a ton of material here. We really wanted to make this, this sitcom work. And in all honesty, podcasting is our second choice. We really just want to be working on the sitcom. So if anyone has any connections in the media industry, uh, if anyone has any friends at Netflix or Amazon Prime, let us know. Also, apologies to the majority of our listeners for introducing several acronyms on the last two shows without explaining them or introducing concepts and not going into them. We'll try our best to not do this in the future. Yes. With but. that being said, we are going to be talking about SIFTA, which is... The Canadian-Israel Free Trade Agreement. We will also be talking about Iran and the response of the institutional Jewish community. Other acronyms that might be confusing for people, JDL, Jewish Defense League. ADL, Anti-Defamation League, and I cannot think of another one right now. Anyway, there'll be many, many acronyms as the show goes on. And we will try to explain them. So last week on the show, we talked a lot about the Jewish press reporting on an expansion of the Canadian-Israel Free Trade Agreement. We pretty much just said there was nothing we could find of any substance on what this expansion actually was. Yeah, as per usual, it feels like these kind of press releases are pretty empty. There's discussions about how much the two countries like each other, but there's no actual substance as to what the trade deal entails. Well, of course, after we recorded that show, we had a straight week or two of announcements of exactly what this trade deal entails. So uh, we're going to update you with some of that information that we found. So over the past two weeks, the government made a series of announcements that they're pairing up companies with Israeli companies to adapt technology from the Iron Dome air defense system. Yeah, the one instance that got repeated in the Jewish press was something that happened in Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu. Canadian Defense Minister Jason Kenney made an appearance to announce that the government was awarding Rhine Metal Canada a contract to produce 10 medium-range radar systems for the Canadian military. 
Yeah, and this is relevant because the government's going to be pairing this company up with ELTA Systems, which is a subsidiary of Israel Aerospace Industries, to adopt technology from the Iron Dome air defense system. They're essentially sharing the technology to be able to detect missiles that would be targeted at Canadian troops wherever they're deployed. So there's also an announcement out of Ontario that Elliston, the Mississauga-based construction company, is being paired with Rafael Advanced Defense Systems. Uh, now, Rafael Advanced Defense Systems used to be the research and development division of the Israeli Defense Forces and are now a private weapons development company. And, th and this announcement is a bit different than the rest of them because this is actually an instance where the Iron Dome tech is being adapted to civilian infrastructure. It's actually going to be adapted to Guelph's electrical grid. And it's coming about through a $1 million grant from the Canada-Israel Industrial Research and Development Foundation, which is a government project. It's actually public dollars that went into this. And they want to commercialize what they're building here to sell on the global market. Anyway, as announcements are made, we'll continue to bring you boring financial and technology-based announcements of Israel and Canada cooperating together. And as per usual, if you have any information or if you think there's anything related to the Canadian-Israel Free Trade Agreement that we should know about, hit us up, trafepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, if your uncle got a contract printing Israeli flags, <laughs> if uh, <laughs> if your brother got hired by a Strymel manufacturer based in the West Bank. For any human being who has been following the Jewish press, there's really only been one thing going on in the last three weeks, and that has been discussions about Iran. Now, I don't want to make light of this situation, but the Jewish Daily Forward Segal Samuel linked to a video that was made by some DJ in Israel that I think is representative of the sentiment of Jewish communities around the world about this hyper-focus on Iran. In this deadly Game of Thrones, we must always remember three things. First, Iran. Second, Iran. For anyone who stayed with us for that extended Benjamin Netanyahu remix, I think the discussion around Iran is complicated because it's a little bit hard to pin down as far as what our positionality is on it. It's a deal between the United States and several Western-powered countries and Iran. But the Jewish community in Canada is being brought into this discussion as partisans of Israel. So the discussion is not about Canada, it's not about Canadian safety, although the Harper government is trying to make it about that. But this is a discussion about the Jewish community and Canada's feelings towards Israel and how the general narrative is that Iran is a dangerous country towards Israel. Yeah, and to those who haven't been following the whole thing, the deal is a compromise between Iran and the United States to prevent a military conflict and for the United States to feel comfortable that Iran won't be building up a nuclear weapon. But just to be clear, this starts from very shaky premises, right? So the United States has nuclear weapons. Israel has nuclear weapons. I believe that most of the P5 countries have nuclear weapons. So it's basically a group of people with nuclear weapons saying that Iran can't have nuclear weapons. But yeah, I think the disagreement here between Israel and the United States seems to lie in how do the United States and other Western countries prevent Iran from also getting nuclear weapons? And the United States thinks that the deal that they've struck makes sense. But Israel thinks that there ought to be perhaps an armed conflict, perhaps more sanctions, 
But all of this discussion has led to a lot of bizarre coverage in both the regular press and the Jewish press. So I just kind of want to go through some of that for you and flesh out a lot of what's being talked about here. Yeah. In the Canadian Jewish News, CJA CEO, Shimon Fogel. David, I actually don't remember what CJA stands for. Uh, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. The Center okay. for Israel and Jewish Affairs is at the top of the top-down structure of the current institutional Jewish community, kind of acts simultaneously as a pro-Israel lobby group, but also organizes the majority of the institutions of the Jewish community through funding. So his, his article lists the major arguments that anti-deal folks are touting. Uh, the, the, ba- the general premise is that Iran supports global terror, ignoring other countries in the region like Saudi that supports terror and having a very limited definition of what terror is, not including Western terror in that. There is also the argument that eventually one day Iran could build a bomb and they want some kind of a deal where that is impossible forever. The third interesting argument that's being made is that sanctions that the West has placed on Iran are being lifted as part of this deal, and they see that as a negative. For them, forms of BDS on Iran are the only way to go, but any kind of BDS against Israel is anti-Semitic. Yeah, and so you've seen this perspective manifest itself in a number of ways. Part of what this has led to is in the United States, you've seen APAC, which is the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. They've called in a huge amount of resources to lobby Congress to not pass this. In Canada, it's seen the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs coming out extremely hard against this and trying to lobby the Jewish community to also come out strong against this. The conservative government has come out strong against this Iran deal. So one of the ways that this perspective has manifested itself was in a 200-person demonstration in front of the U.S. consulate in Toronto a few weeks ago that were expressing their objections to the Iran deal. This rally featured quite a bit of absurd statements that we don't need to get through right now. We're going to post this in our show notes today. But they mirrored a lot of parallel demonstrations happening in the United States by the Jewish community trying to urge their members of Congress to vote against this bill. So one of the people present at this demonstration was the rabbi of the Beit Avraham Yosef of Toronto Congregation, which has recently made the news for being the recipient of what was described as an anti-Semitic attack. Yeah, so I actually was alerted to this not through the Jewish media, but by an email from a family member, since this was a shul I grew up going to as a child, Oh wow. and is actually down the street from my mother's house in Thornhill. And information about this situation was circulated by a school that I, I went to in high school. The description, as was written in that email, was the same as that existed in the Canadian Jewish News, which was a report that put several men in hoodies taking pictures of the shul, yelling anti-Semitic epithets at the security guard, having a covered license plate, and driving away. So this this was forwarded to me. Definitely a concerning thing to hear. But soon after, the York Regional Police put out a statement saying that this was completely unfounded, that actually there was no anti-Semitic epithets yelled, that there was a brief confrontation between someone and a security guard, but has had nothing to do with anti-Semitism. And the reason that I want to bring this up is because the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs used this incident to create a national conversation about the safety of the Jewish community. Yeah, I mean, it was it was quite strong. If you're on Twitter or you were on their website, it there were there were kind of bold headlined articles. There were tweets about what Sija is doing to protect Jews. There was a point by point list of what Sija is doing. I think it was it was very much picked up really quickly without a ton of research done and pushed out there to further a certain narrative. Yeah, and this is all happening at the same time that in downtown Toronto, about a 30-minute drive from there, 
black activists had to occupy the gardener just to get city officials to listen to their demands after police continued to murder black men with impunity. So it's just a stark comparison between the states that the Jewish community is in and the black community, with the Jewish community crying wolf about anti-Semitism and having the hand of police services immediately extended to them for assistance versus the black community, which is actually continuing to encounter systemic oppression from that same police service. Do you know if CJA publicly retracted any of these statements? No, but they put out another statement just essentially thanking the York Regional Police profusely for helping them and doing this investigation, being patient with them. The York Regional Police statement about it was pretty terse and condemned the person who uh, who told them it was an anti-Semitic incident. So for our new listeners, this segment's called Shkoyach. Shkoyach is a term in Yiddish that is kind of a substitute for a bravo that you give someone after they've done something particularly great. And on every show, me and Sam both offer a Shkoyach to someone or something or some group that we think is doing something great in the world. With that being said, David, what is your Shkoyach for the day? So my Shkoyach for today goes to an organization that you might not be familiar with who are called JSwipe. But you might be familiar with an organization called J-Date. Have you heard of that one? I have heard of J-Date before, yes. So J-Swipe is kind of a younger, hipper version of uh, J-Date. Can Uh, I ask a question? Sure. Is J-Date to J-Swipe what Match.com is to Tinder? I I think that's a good good comparison. And I think that J-Date has realized that that is correct. And as a result, has filed a lawsuit against (laughs) J-Swipe to try to... (laughs) To suggest that they are the only people who can use the term J in front of a dating service. Oh, wow. And um, it's a pretty serious lawsuit, and J-Swipe's been scrambling. But yesterday, they announced that they're doing a crowdfunding campaign. They've positioned themselves as the people's Jewish dating site. And if you want to support the true love revolution, you can go to their Indiegogo campaign site and donate money to them to help them defend themselves against J-Date. Oh, so that's Swipe that's that's doing the grassroots mobilization. Yeah, J-Swipe is the app of the people, J-Date, your father's app, who is trying to destroy all fun and love in the world. Noted. My Clearly, my initial allegiance goes with the underdog here. How do we... Have, have, have you used any of these apps before? No, I mean, I have uh, the Tinder app on my phone, but I don't I don't think I've ever used a Jewish-specific one. It's a, it makes me feel a little strange. Similar. I, yeah, I, I'm... I mean, if I wanted to go on a, on a date with someone who worked on Joe Lieberman's campaign, I guess it would be the right way to go. For those listening, we are now doing 15-year-old dated American political references. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm, do you have any idea on the ownership structures of either of these two entities? I am kind of hoping that J-Swipe is run out of a loft in Brooklyn. I assume maybe J-Swipe and J-Date share an office building in Manhattan. Uh, To be honest, I'm not sure. But the Jerusalem Post had an article where they pointed out several other services that start with J that might also be the next hit by this. It was one of those, you know, first they came for the J-Swipe kind of situations. (laughs) Um, This included J-Crew, J-Store, um, some other examples. Uh, but again, it's just it's part of this understanding of of our need to support JSwipe in resistance against this uh, this repression. Wow. I mean, collectivizing it to include JSTOR is pretty serious. Do you, I mean, you do know what JSTOR is, yeah? I think JSTOR is safe, although I wouldn't support them. Yeah. Shout out to Aaron Schwartz. Rest in power. Um, so Sam, who's your square for the week? My square of the week goes to a fellow who I looked up to as a child, actually. His name is Metje Schneider, and he was a professional ice hockey player. 
who recently got inducted into the American Sports Hall of Fame. So Matthew Schneider grew up in the U.S., but his mother is from Tetford Mines in Quebec. Matthew Schneider gave hope to Jewish hockey players in North America in the mid-90s that we could possibly make it in some, in some way. So he made it. He made it. He, what, what did he do? He had an illustrious career, actually. He played for almost half of the teams in the NHL, which usually doesn't have the best connotation. He, he won the Cup in Montreal in 93. He won the Stanley Cup. So the Montreal has not won a Stanley Cup since 1993. It's difficult for many of us, um, but he was part of the team when he won. So as I was researching some of this, I came across a 2001 Jewish Journal article. This article informed us that when he was in Montreal, he lived in Montreal twice, but when he was in Montreal at one point, he lived in the, quote, right in the Jewish area of town in New York. He served, and I'm not joking, this is a direct quote, he served as a spokesperson for Tay-Sachs testing, and he rode a cherry picker to light the first candle of what he described as the world's largest menorah. Wow. So yeah, so Schoyer to Matthew Schneider, you inspired an entire generation, and you are now in the American Sports Hall of Fame. Yeah, I guess this is an inspiration to Jewish. Um, I mean, I don't really, I feel like I understand the value of this man. I understand that, you know, it's great to play hockey, <laughs> but um, are there, are there no, aren't there not a lot of famous Jewish athletes? I don't know. Listen, I mean, the, the closest equivalent I can try right now is to say that imagine you found out that an X-Man was Jewish. I mean, there are Jewish X-Men, Kitty Pride. All right. So do you do you feel a certain kind of affinity to Kitty Pride because of that? No. Okay. How about an X-Men writer? Do you feel any affinity <laughs> to Jewish writers? Oh, you, mean, you mean you think there might be some Jewish writers over at Marvel Comics? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> On today's show, we have Clifton Nicholas. Clifton is a Mohawk filmmaker and activist from Ganastage. He's made several films. He runs a production company called Devil Dog Productions, and he's now working on a film called Long Shadow of the Pines, 25 years since the 1990 Oka Crisis. Welcome to the show, Clifton. Hi, how are you? Uh, not bad, not bad. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Um, so, Clifton, would you mind talking a bit about the Indiegogo campaign for your new film project and what the film hopes to explore? Well, the film project, I'm going for crowdfunding versus government funding, because the way I see it, the 1990 crisis was an exercise of sovereignty. And if it's an exercise of sovereignty, I don't feel that would be appropriate for me to run to Canada to find funds. I want it to be a crowdfunded project because I want to have all, all the creative controls in, in my hands, as opposed to having somebody else dictating to me and my group what we're going to put in the film and what we can't put in the film. So that, that's, in a nutshell, basically why I'm doing an Indiegogo campaign. Clifton, would it be possible to just explain to the listeners who don't know a whole lot about the film industry what the traditional way for people to get funding for documentaries is? Well, usually what you have to do is you have to submit your various proposals to different organizations like uh, the Canada Council, uh, the Conseil des Arts, the Left de Quebec, things like that. And uh, if you don't have the, the proper uh, bureaucratic structure set up, which I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not in a necessarily an established production company. Uh, not like some other production companies in Neural Montreal that have a, a total bureaucracy surrounding their, their productions. It's hard for me to access these funds. Do you think there was a time where you would have considered taking money from groups like the NFB? I, I, I would, and I'm still willing to work with them. Like Not in this particular project, because like I said earlier, there's a principle that I'm trying to stand with. 
I didn't even apply to any process because I didn't want to for this particular project. But I, I don't I don't close my doors on future projects with these these people because they do do a lot of good work. Yeah. Could you maybe I like we kind of jumped right into it, but could you talk a little bit about the film that you want to make and what some of the ideas sure. and frameworks are behind it? Well, uh, the nineteen eighty Oka crisis was a very huge moment in the indigenous history and the struggles for indigenous rights. And I was a person that was involved in that intimately from before it started during the crisis until the end of it. And even throughout the last 25 years, I've been involved in one way or another with uh, the struggle for my people. And basically the film that I'm trying to do is in part a retrospective look at the 1990 crisis, an introspection for my own feelings and impact it's had on my life, and also uh, an inspection and how the youth who grew up after 1990 how did it impact them? That hence the title, In the Long Shadow of Defiance, because it casts a long shadow, and it casts a long shadow across Canada. And I want to look at how movements are also affected and how it ignited different movements, how it reinvigorated the indigenous movements. There were so many things that happened from 1990 that was associated to people getting up and standing up and doing things. I mean, even up to I Don't Know More, you have a lot of people who were inspired by what occurred here in 1990, you can see the, the famous unity flag, the warrior flag, being used as one of the symbols, the main symbol of resistance for indigenous people across the board. It, it's, a, it's a very big project. There's a lot to talk about, a lot to look into, and uh, uh, that's why I'm asking like at least 75,000 to get the picture done. It seems like a large number, but if you're really looking at it in the scope of being a filmmaker in the film world, it's not a lot of money. Yeah, definitely. And we mentioned before that you have put out two films prior to this, one about the resistance in Elsa Pogtog to fracking, led by Indigenous people there, and also about the resistance to the Energy East pipeline and the effects that resource extraction, specifically around the tar sands, had on Indigenous communities. Um, but what's the difference between making those films and the process that you're undertaking now to, to make this one? Well, uh, the first one, Elsa Pogtog, no fracking way, it was a thing of necessity. It had to get out soon because the crisis had just happened when I showed up on the ground. I was there a week after it happened. Uh, unfortunately, I had gotten sick, really very sick, immediately following doing the filming, the principal photography for that film. And I wasn't able to release it until the winter. But I released it still. It was timely because the, the incidents were still happening. There was still a crisis going on in the community. And I had to get it out there. And I had to, had to put it out there free online which was not an, never an issue with me to begin with. It's part of the struggle. It's something I wanted to put out the, to show people, listen, this is still happening from a point of crisis, because it, it struck a chord in me when I seen what was happening in Asipugtug. It brought back a lot of fear and trepidation, to say the least, and anxiety to uh, see what was happening there. And remembering what happened to us in 1990 and having a fear that another crisis is starting. And it very easily could have happened that, you know, we had a large crisis like what happened here in 1990. Uh, the second film was also, uh, I, I feel like, a matter of urgency, considering that the Energy East pipelines were being negotiated, and there was a lot of propaganda being put out by uh, Trans-Canada Pipelines and Enbridge and so on, all these other uh, people who are exploiting the tar sands. So I, I felt it was important to do something uh, like that, talking to people who are, again, on the front lines in indigenous communities who are living either in the tar sands or in the pathway of this pipeline. I put that out again free because it had to be put out there for free. Well, I was just I was just wondering because you're talking about participating in those land defense struggles in different ways over time, as well as okay. documenting them. And I was just wondering if over that period of time you've seen a shift in the way 
that these struggles are organized and also received both in indigenous communities and in settler communities? Oh, for sure. I mean, there's more attention given to it. You know, there's a stronger alliance that's been built between the indigenous community and the non-indigenous community. There's no doubt that there, there's a large base of allies now that are willing to stand on the lines and do what they have to do to bring attention to what's going on in the communities. I, I think there's a, a larger span of attention now within the non-indigenous community, the general population, about what's going on in the indigenous communities. Like you had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission findings that came out. You had the other stuff that was coming out about murdered, missing indigenous women. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things happening right now, uh, in spite of uh, of the efforts on the part of successive governments, with the Harper government being one of the worst to ha- cover up these things. But the tide still keeps rising. So there's a lot of positive in there, a lot of negative still, because there's still a lot of struggles happening. There's still a lot of issues that are going on. You know, we have current things that are happening as we speak right now. Aside from the tire signs, you know, aside from Elsie Pugto, you have to look at what's going on with the Inu in La Romaine. They're blocking roads to stop the hydro project in La Romaine in northeastern Quebec. Then you have the Unistodan people who are uh, on the edge right now with their camp and their blocking of the pipelines going through the Pacific Ocean. So there's a lot of things happening. And, and again, the issue of murdered and missing indigenous women is still on top of that list and still haven't gotten the right responses from government. And all of these things, the attention would not be there if it wasn't for what happened in 1990. And there's, there's a lot of things that are still need to be said. And working to do media like film or even radio, you know, it helps bring the subject matter to the forefront. It helps uh, give a voice. And I feel it's important for people in my position, indigenous uh, struggles, to uh, have that voice, to be able to, to say, listen, we're here and this is what we're struggling for. We, we have to tell our story within our, with our own words, in our own ways. And I think we're progressively getting more and more space, which is a good thing. Pushing back a little bit on that subject in terms of getting space and in terms of Harper, you've talked publicly before about how you have faced repression from the state. And I know that C-51 and the government's bill to uh, increase surveillance and repression, which is explicitly targeting uh, Muslim folks and Arabic-speaking folks, but also clearly has the effect of impacting indigenous struggles across the country. I'm wondering if you could speak to this general trend that's happening. Well, yeah, it's a classic trend. Since 1990, they've, they've continually upped the ante when it comes to uh, so-called security and intelligence and, and its use against indigenous people. Now it's scary because I've personally been targeted by CSIS I've traveled abroad, been followed around in Greece, and uh, uh, having them keep tabs on on my movements here in Canada. So it is it is a very serious concern, and I think that people within general population in Canada have to fight this because if it's going to happen to us as Indigenous people, if it's going to happen to Muslim people, it can happen to anybody. So that's a slippery slope that they're on, and you have to realize that, and you have to stop worrying on that fear mongering that they're they're watching on their television sets every day about the other and about the danger of the other. Because that, that danger is a lot of time fabricated. And and you can just see with the campaign for the election, you know, that, that's all they keep talking about, right? They keep bringing up fear. It's funny because if you, if you listen to what they're saying, you know, the, they have key words. It doesn't matter what you're saying, they're going to say something like ISIS or Greece. ISIS, Greece. Or really Greece. Greece. No, 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 Greece. ISIS. You know, really? You think so? No, ISIS. It's almost like a kid. You know, that, that's how they're acting, and it's just it's really ridiculous. I think that narrative that you're talking about has also taken hold pretty strongly within the Jewish community that we talk a lot about on the show. Have you noticed any links being made 
between migrants or, or even specifically Muslim communities here with indigenous struggles toward uh, self-determination or just against repression by the state? I, I think it's hard for a lot of migrants to really connect with indigenous people because a lot of times they're they're afraid and rightfully so because they get targeted. You know, they have a lot to lose. And it's not always easy for them to say, yeah, I'll pick up the, the mantle and then get involved with the struggle for indigenous issues. And a lot of them just don't simply know. You know, a lot of them, a lot of them are fed a propaganda line in their own country about what Canada is. And Canada does this internationally, right? That's why Harper got up and gave his Buffalo speech about the apology about residential schools. It's about propaganda. At the end of the day, it's just it's a propaganda model so that they don't open themselves up to litigation. It can tell the world, look, we apologize. I don't know what they're crying about. So they do this to migrant people who come into the country. It's like, there is nothing wrong. Don't believe that. It's overstated. It's not true. And then they'll say ISIS in Greece, right? So basically, they want to keep these people separated. And I think we as indigenous people should have a large say in, in immigrant issues also. We, we should have a bigger stake when it comes to uh, working with migrant groups. They have an important position within the society. They have a fragile position also. They should be supported by our people more. But then again, that's another struggle for me to take you within our own ranks in the indigenous community to educate people about what's going on with that as it is within the advocates for migrants to the country to educate them about the realities in this country also. So we have, we, have work, we have a work cut out for us. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the film and okay. how you feel like the media represented the 25-year anniversary. Well, you know, it's again, it's lackluster of coverage. I mean, they're covering it because of sensationalism. They're still sidestepping the whole issue of land. You know, I just want to talk about the violence that occurred. And they don't want to talk about the issues at hand. And that the issues are still here 25 years later. And that's one of the things I'm tackling in this film is that there's still issues that exist here in Ganesanaga that are still unresolved from 25 years ago. From 100 years ago. They're still here. They're still happening. And, uh, you know, we have so many things that we need to go over to maintain a dialogue with that, that the government and the media refuses to talk about. And, again, the media, they don't necessarily want to get into what the core problem is. And when they talk about lands, and then, you know, it's kind of like they scoff at the idea, just like the government does. Talk about land issues and talk about land rights and so on, and talk about environmental issues. And maybe they just, like, you're kind of like, okay, well, we don't care. Let's talk about what the warriors did. These are still warriors, or they're still warriors, or they're still people willing to, to fight. Well, well, yeah, as long as there's injustice, there's still people willing to fight. And, you know, uh, I, I was interviewed by a number of media outlets in the mainstream, on the 25th anniversary, CBC being one of them, CBC French, uh, I believe strongly in doing my interviews in French also, so I, I tried my best, but I found that a lot of my stuff would get skewed in the editing room floor, you know, they get a lot of my content gets kind of thrown to the side, especially when I'm talking about racism. Uh, that was one of the biggest issues I had with the CBC French interview. When I was doing the interview, there was this elderly couple, white uh, couple from the village Volca, who uh, were kind of taking exception to what I was talking about and were trying to confront me. And I basically put it to them about racism in Oka, and that it's the, it's the big elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about here in Oka. That's the racism of the white people against the Ganyokaaga people in Ganyokaaga. You know, the status quo that was then is still existing today, and the fact that that racism is affecting the land developments around our community. And, you know, the whole idea of, of us taking our land right back and reclaiming our lands is a big issue due to the racism of the people who are living, the settlers on their lands. So there's issues like that, that the media, again, they didn't even put that in the, in the story, you know. I, I'm, I'm not expecting anything different because 25 years ago it was the same. 
They didn't want to hear anything about the lands. They didn't want to hear anything about the struggle, about rights. All they want to hear about, they have guns. What If it bleeds, it leads, right? Yeah. That's the mainstream model. Yeah, and as long as they're controlling the platform, those ideas aren't going to get out there. Yeah, and I mean, we're, we're very excited to see the eventual film that is made out of this fundraising campaign. And we're going to put the link to the Indiegogo on our show notes for this episode, as well as on the website, and urge all listeners to visit it and give it a look. Again, it's uh, Devil Dog Productions, that Clifton Nicholas's production company that's producing this film. And Clifton, what's the best way for folks to see the two other movies? Well, you can just go to my, my YouTube page, Clifton Nicholas, and I have the two films there. Okay, great. Well, keep us in touch. We will promote it in any way we can. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks again for joining us on the show today, Clifton. Thanks for having me. Trade Podcast is Sam Beck and David Zinman. Today's episode is recorded at CKUT 90.3 FM in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyarhaga territory. Thank you to our director of design, Claire Hertig, and to Sack Syndrome for the music that you heard on this episode. All articles we've referenced can be found in the episode notes. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at Treyf, T-R-E-Y-F, or send comments and suggestions to treyfpodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon.